Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. were scenes from the 1978 Hal Ashby anti-war classic Coming Home, which earned John Voight as Best Actor Oscar as a physically and psychologically shattered anti-war ex-soldier. And Voight, whose politics were apparently not always what they are today, is our guest on the show, once again playing a damaged Vietnam veteran in the horror drama Dangerous Game. And while COVID has led to an unending procession of pandemic-driven dystopian doomsday and disaster terror in new movies, Dangerous Game, The Legacy Murders has something a little different, yet the same subconsciously in mind. In other words, evil itself as contagious, with Voight's family patriarch Ellison Betts having possibly descended into homicidal tendencies after killing a Vietnamese soldier in the war, and then infecting his own descendants, while intimating that violence and even war itself can be as contagious psychologically as a pandemic, even if not the conscious intent of a filmmaker influenced by the world around him. These and other issues surrounding the narrative were raised with John Voight, joined by the filmmaker Sean McNamara, while discussing as well the actor's creative journey, so to speak, through the years in wheelchairs from coming home to his new film. First, some scenes from Dangerous Game. We haven't been together in so long. This is my family. Happy birthday, Pop. Oh, cool, look, there's another gift. Hey, open it, you, you open it, you open it. On the count of three? Yeah. One, two, Three. Boom! Oh my God! See, I'm funny. Welcome to Dangerous Game, an immersive murder mystery where you are the detective. Solve the mystery, find the killer, and win the game. It sounds like a hoot. Let's let's play. Have at it. I'm out of here. Enjoy your creepy board game. Don't be alarmed. Join us in the great room. The killer is on the loose. Is this your idea of a joke? I didn't do it. No, you didn't. You're a cripple. No, I, I've heard of immersive games, but they're usually fun. You must play the game, Alec. Consider this a warning. 
Hello and welcome to our show, both of you. Very nice, very nice to be on your show, Crary. And Sean and, and Sean McNamara feels the same way. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Okay. Now, Dangerous Games is a horror mystery, but it's also influenced by its moment in time in the real world. So what can you say about this film, perhaps influenced by the pandemic, and how evil itself can be contagious, getting passed on to others, and even in its ultimate manifestation with endless wars we see in this country? Wow. Larry, that that's a heavy question. I, I, I'm going to tell you something. Dangerous Games... I don't know that anyone was thinking about that when we made Dangerous Games. We were re really making an entertainment, and uh, and uh, it, it's a fearsome entertainment. You know, it's uh, Dangerous Games. The Legacy Murders is uh, is it's it's a whodunit, but it turns uh, it, it turns into a, a kind of horrific uh, uh, adventure. And I, I want to warn people that if you're not, you know, really strong of heart, you 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 got to be careful with this film. Now I know couples will go see this film, and there's always one of the couples is a little more sensitive than the other, and one will look at this film, and at certain moments they'll go, oh no, I don't, I don't want to look at this, you know, and then, but they'll sneak a look through their fingers, you see, yeah, and the other one will say, dear, listen. Don't worry, I'm here. You know, it'll bring people together in that way. Mm. <laughs> and speaking of wars, and without giving too much away, there is mention in the film of the Vietnam War as an original precipitating factor. So what are your thoughts about that? And would you say your character in question may have been suffering from PTSD and the trauma of war? Well, listen, uh, these questions, I'm telling you, Prairie, you're, uh, you're very interesting. Uh, these questions are very interesting. I think that you can put together anything you want, you know, from a film. Uh, and, of course, you're going to personalize it, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I believe that the diagnosis of these bizarre people uh, is part of the fun of it. So I, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, Sean, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what people are going to love about Dangerous Game, The Legacy Murders, is that it, families sometimes dread getting together for a holiday or a birthday and all of that stuff because it literally wars happen within the family. They fight with each other. And so this is like, it is the, you know, they're all coming to see, uh, have a great time for an event, a big family event, but none of them want to be there. And so it's how we all kind of put on those faces and say, like, we're here, here's the presence, we're all here. But underneath it, there is something going on that we all have with different family members. So it's literally, like, in the real world, there could be war. In this family, there is war going on just beneath the surface. But the difference is this family takes it to the extreme. And also speaking of war, John, you've seemed to have made somewhat of a journey from your Academy Award-winning performance as the wheelchair-bound Vietnam veteran Luke Martin in Coming Home in 1978 to Ellison Bess, confined in a wheelchair as well in this film. So what are your thoughts about your journey in film as an actor through those decades to the present time? I seem to have something to, you know, to do with wheelchairs. You know, because I also did played Franklin Roosevelt in in uh, Pearl Harbor, mm. and uh, was in a wheelchair for that one as well. But uh, 
um, yeah, it's very it's very interesting uh, what you learn as you do films and and uh, those things that you have to deal with. In this case, we have a wheelchair that is very modern wheelchair that has uh, a lot of uh, you know bells and whistles and uh, and and it could move at a great, great speed. It was it's electric, so he. His movements, what I was doing on the screen is real. Is they're really uh, he's moving at quite a pace, and the thing raises up at one point. I mean, it's really um, it's more than a wheelchair. It's like a little home, you know, uh, or a dangerous car or something like that. But anyway, uh, in each each of the uh, films that you do, you know, you you're given challenges to work out, and you're discovering things and and this was no different. But this is a different tone than I've ever worked in, actually. You know, I've never done one of these kind of creepy horror things, you know? <laughs> and it, I had to be educated in it. But I had a great, I had a great cast and a great director. Sean was wonderful. As you can see, you know, the way he talks, he's so clear uh, and so dynamic. And he has got this great voice that carries throughout when he says action i mean it's i mean you've got to go you know mm. but uh, uh he's he's a terrific fellow to work with and he and nothing daunts him and we had a great group of actors and i wanted especially to maybe just mention uh, the girls in the film they're, two, they're three young ladies played by skylar shea uh kaya coleman and uh, megan carpentier and these three girls are just terrific in the film, and everybody else in the film is really wonderful. Uh, but and there are surprises in each of the characters. So uh, I, I had fun making this film, and of course, again, uh, Sean McNamara was a key to uh, all of our energies. Mm. It was wonderful. And Sean, what can you say about the film you'll be coming up in Megalopolis by Francis Ford Coppola? about rebuilding New York City after a disaster, and what inspired you to be part of that project? Well, th that, that piece is, uh, uh, Francis inspired me to do that, and the cast is magnificent again. Uh, so, but I haven't started shooting that yet. I'll, sh I'll start in, in a month's time. I'll be on the, in front of the camera. So that's, that's an exciting time too. But I wanted, to, I wanted Sean to get back into this and just r respond to my compliments. Do you see <laughs> just keep them coming. But, but where John is, is really right, we had an incredible cast led by John. He's the patriarch of the story, and he leads this family around his home. And John, just being a, a, like a family man himself, was great at pulling the cast. A lot of these uh, young ladies that he was talking about, they're, they're younger, and he brought out the best performances in them. I mean, there's nothing like sitting around with John and working out story and, and having the whole cast find that it's so important to really find the minutia of what's going on in the family dynamic. And because we, we did some nice table reads and rehearsals, and everybody just likes to hang out with John and, and glean his wisdom. So that's so when we were on the set, these guys gave performances, like John said, that they were just incredible. You're going to be seeing so much more of them. Um, none the least of which John Reese Myers was in this also, and he just gave a stellar performance. Well, yeah, and he, I, he, I want to get in on that too. John Reese Myers is an, a great actor, uh, and, and you don't. When I say that, as he's an he's an actor that a, other actors talk about, 
and uh, and he's a joy to work with. And that was the first time I'd ever worked with him. And since then, I worked with uh, on another film with him, uh, and uh, he's very special. So just just know that you're going to see some special special work being done all throughout this cast. And what would you like audiences to know and understand about these characters and this story? Take that, Sean. Um, what I want people is to come into the uh, theater and watch it on digital on um, October 21st. And just remember when they get together with family, it could never be as bad as this, what happens with this family. <laughs> well, not that you're a serial killer, but would you say this story is in any way autobiographical? Holy smokes, I hope not. <laughs> oh. I can neither confirm nor deny that <laughs> has anything to do with my life. All I know is John has never called me such a sicko every day when I came to work, though, on any other film. And when John Voigt looks in the mirror, what does he see? I, I see the next character, if I'm... <laughs> I, I make faces to a mirror. You know what I mean? I, I talk to myself. My son came in un, unannounced uh, uh, just a couple of days ago, and I was talking to myself. I was doing the character, trying to find some moment in the performance for the next movie. And, uh, and he said, what's the matter with you? And I said, oh, I, I'm, just, I'm just working. I had to apologize for, for working on my thing. But anyways, I use anything to get a performance going. Okay, thank you so much, both of you, for calling into the show. Thanks, Crary. Nice to talk to you. And Dangerous Game is out this week in release. And coming up next in the Arts Express screening room, Pollock and the CIA, A War of Ideas, how the CIA secretly used artist Jackson Pollock and abstract art to fight the Cold War against the Soviet Union and excerpt a deep dive into the CIA Operation Longleash and Pollock, alias Jack the Dripper, fond of flinging cheap house paint on canvas. This is the story about how Jackson Pollock became tangled up in America's propaganda war with the Soviet Union. But it's also the story about how a radical New York City art movement aligned with America's economic and cultural dominance after World War II. In the late 1940s, a left-wing avant-garde painter like Jackson Pollock would have seemed like a very unlikely candidate to receive support from the CIA. Now, this was a time when many Americans, including President Harry Truman, loathed abstract modern art. Americans appreciated more traditional, realistic approaches to painting, and they were put off by the works of artists like Pablo Picasso. Add to this fact that Jackson Pollock was suspected of communist ties, and the CIA's backing of Pollock seems all the more improbable during the height of the McCarthy era. Up until World War II, America had never produced large, influential art movements like in Europe. Most American artists during the 1920s and 1930s had conventional approaches to painting, or if they did paint abstractly, they took their cues from Europe. But after World War II, something unexpected happened. A brood of radical American painters helped make New York City the new center of the art world. 
artists like Mark Rothko, Willem de Kooning, and Jackson Pollock captured the world's attention with large-scale works of pure color and form. The style of painting was radical and new, and most importantly, it was a wholly American art movement. It was called Abstract Expressionism. And by the 1950s, this new American painting was the most exciting thing happening in the art world. But to the CIA, this American art movement represented a potential weapon in the fight against communism. The wreckage of World War II left the United States and the Soviet Union as the world's two remaining superpowers, and the tensions that would eventually lead to the Cold War began immediately. This was a war for hearts and minds, and by the late 1940s, a war that the CIA felt they were losing. And to make it worse, the CIA felt the Soviets had stolen all the best words like freedom, justice, and peace. So the CIA decided to make a massive push to promote American arts and culture, and Jackson Pollock and abstract expressionists would find a special place in the CIA's portfolio. The CIA realized they could use abstract expressionism to highlight the differences between American and Soviet politics. And more specifically, they could highlight the appeal of American culture over Soviet culture. Because in this new war of ideas, the abstract expressionists evoked the most sacred American values, individualism. The CIA's plan makes perfect sense when one considers the state of Soviet art of the time. Beginning in the 1930s under Joseph Stalin, the USSR restricted Soviet artists to a single genre, socialist realism. This was an official style of art that idealized communist values and glorified the Soviet working class. The goal of the art was to promote solidarity and party loyalty. All Soviet art had to be realistic and could only portray Soviet life in a favorable light. This clearly wouldn't fly in America. No one was going to tell Jackson Pollock how or what to paint. He may have been sympathetic to communism, but Pollock's art could not have been more antithetical to socialist realism. The very concept of abstract expressionism is all about the subconscious creation of the individual artist. Like the surrealists who came before them, the abstract expressionists were interested in unlocking the deep mysteries of the mind. But unlike the surrealists, the abstract expressionists left any vestige of representation behind. These paintings looked like little that came before them. They were pure abstraction, nothing from the real world, only the inner world, manifested in color, shape, and texture. And these paintings, they didn't look like each other either. The abstract expressionists seemed to be expressing themselves in unique, individualistic ways. Art was no longer about capturing an experience. It was, in the words of Mark Rothko, the experience itself. And Pollock's paintings were particularly radical. His free-flowing technique ignored the bounds of the canvas itself. Pollock chose to paint on the ground without stretcher bars, flinging cheap house paint straight off the edges. This technique earned him the derisive nickname Jack the Dripper. It was, in a way, the perfect vector for the CIA's message of American freedom of choice over Soviet restrictions. A former CIA agent named Donald Jameson said, It was recognized that abstract expressionism was the kind of art that made the Soviet-sanctioned socialist realism look even more stylized and more rigid and confined than it really was, and that this relationship was exploited in some of the exhibitions. And so one could quite adequately and accurately reason that anything they criticized that much and that heavy-handedly was worth support one way or another.
The subjective, non-representational nature of abstract expressionism made it very amenable to interpretation. So if the CIA or influential art critics like Clement Greenberg wanted to attach anti-communist Western values to abstract expressionism, well then the art allowed for it. And so Pollock really became the ultimate avatar for this new American art movement. A kind of cowboy painter with an unchained id who seemed to exude American spirit. Pollock argued that painting is a state of being. Painting is self-discovery. Every good artist paints what he is. And so statements like this really show how divorced abstract expressionism was from any kind of politics or ideology. So beginning in 1950, the CIA began to actively promote abstract expressionism. But this wasn't something that could be done openly. Supporting artists with communist ties was just not tenable for the U.S. government. In 1946, the U.S. State Department had created a political firestorm by trying to directly sponsor modern American artists, some of whom turned out to be members of the Communist Party. They then vowed to never again spend taxpayer money on abstract modern art. And so the CIA instead opted for methods that some might have considered morally questionable. Instead of sponsoring American artists directly, as the State Department had done, they secretly helped fund an anti-communist advocacy group called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And through this group, the CIA covertly funneled money to MoMA's international art shows, funded a literary magazine in the UK called Encounter, and operated offices in 35 countries. This entire operation was dubbed Long Leash, and its efforts were designed to target disaffected Soviets intellectuals, artists, and anyone with communist sympathies. This operation also allowed the CIA to organize and promote art on America's home front. A man named Thomas Braden, MoMA's executive secretary in the 1940s, was hired by the CIA to direct these cultural activities. He created a nexus between the U.S. propaganda machine and the elite New York art world. Braden years later described one of the ways in which money was channeled to the arts. He said, we would go to somebody in New York who was a well-known rich person and we would say, we want to set up a foundation. We would tell him what we were actually trying to do and pledge to him in secrecy. And he would say, of course I'll do it. And then you would publish a letterhead and his name would be on it and there would be a foundation. It was really a pretty simple device. Writer and cultural observer Louis Menand argued in his 2005 article for The New Yorker that there was a more specific message that was meant for the Soviets sympathetic to the West. And that message was that you can be a left-wing artist or intellectual, openly criticize your own government, and still flourish in America's free market and open society. Ironically, in the 1950s, the CIA was mostly made up of Ivy League graduates who were far more liberal than other government agencies like the FBI. Many of them actually collected art, were versed in contemporary art of the day, and had associations with the Museum of Modern Art, the preeminent modern art museum in the United States. So whereas FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover sought to persecute left-wing artists and intellectuals, the CIA chose to elevate them. The CIA reasoned that coercion would never win hearts and minds. And so the CIA ended up being quite successful anonymous patrons of leftist American artists throwing several art shows of abstract expressionism in the 1950s through the Congress of Cultural Freedom. By the 1950s, Jackson Pollock had become one of the most famous living American artists and a symbol of America's cultural dominance. 
And even though he divided critics and the public, it was pretty easy to associate Pollock's unbound approach with American freedoms. In a way, the CIA simply amplified a message that had already been developed by prominent American art critics, that American painters were free to invent and defend, and that their success was the result of a superior political and economic system built on freedom and individualism. But there are a number of reasons for the success of abstract expressionism and American art at large beyond the patronage from the CIA. America emerged from World War II as a superpower while Europe was left in ruins. Money was pouring into the arts even without the help of the CIA. Leftist intellectuals such as art critics Harold Rosenberg and Clement Greenberg saw communism as a threat to the independence of the artist. Greenberg saw America as a bastion of artistic freedom and called Jackson Pollock the greatest painter of his generation. Nelson Rockefeller, a staunch anti-communist, donated huge sums to MoMA. He was happy to throw his weight behind original American art. For Rockefeller, this was a patriotic act. And so, even though the general climate in 1950s America was very anti-communist, the climate for avant-garde American painters was actually becoming much more favorable, despite whatever political affiliations they had. Joseph McCarthy was censured by the U.S. Senate in 1954, bringing an end to the McCarthy era. President Harry Truman was replaced by Dwight Eisenhower, Republican no less, who appeared to be much more amenable to modern art. Eisenhower said, As long as our artists are free to create with sincerity and conviction, there will be a healthy controversy and progress in art. Eisenhower, of course, was interested in winning the Cold War, not in protecting the creative process. His acknowledgement of modernism was part of a strategy to showcase America's cultural vitality. Again, appealing to disaffected Soviets and left-wing Europeans who may not have viewed America as having real culture. Of course, by the 1960s, Eisenhower would blame America's moral decline on modern art and the dance craze The Twist, while lamenting Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci's fall from grace. An abstract expressionism endures to this day as a major art movement. But there are obviously major contradictions with the CIA promoting Western values through secrecy and subterfuge. For the CIA to use the idea of American freedom simply as a tool to achieve a political end undermines the principles that America was supposedly founded on and was fighting for during the Cold War. But on the other hand, when the US government tried to promote modern art openly, it was met by the wrath of McCarthyism. Thomas Brady mused that back in the early 50s when the Cold War was really hot, the idea that Congress would have approved many of our projects was about as likely as the John Birch Society approving Medicare. And so the CIA found itself fighting the Soviet Union by subverting a large swath of the American political class, as well as the American artists whose careers they were advancing. And Thomas Braden was anything but apologetic about its role in Cold War propaganda. He wrote an article titled, I'm Glad the CIA is Immoral arguing that the secret promotion of American art and culture in Europe won more acclaim for the U.S. than Dwight D. Eisenhower could have bought with a hundred speeches. Braden would later star as the liberal voice on CNN's Crossfire. But you know, let's not forget, abstract expressionism truly was innovative in its own right. Post-war American art in general was incredibly diverse. Many European avant-garde artists and intellectuals had left Europe for America. Artists like Hans Hoffman and Marcel Duchamp settled in New York City and helped establish the city as the new center of the art world, 
where successive generations and movements would thrive, including conceptual art, pop art, and minimalism. Even within movements like abstract expressionism, the work of different artists looked nothing alike. It was a death stroke of ingenuity by the CIA to characterize this diversity as the product of freedom. But this should not diminish the real innovations of the painters of the time, such as Hans Hoffman, Mark Rothko, Robert Motherwell, Lee Krasner, Barnett Newman, Clifford Still, Helen Frankenthaler, Willem de Kooning, just to name a few. This was an exceptionally inventive time in art history, a period of so-called pure painting and pure expression in which there was a true belief in the power of painting to provide a metaphysical experience. Critics like Harold Rosenberg helped raise this approach to painting into heroic mythological realms. Rosenberg described the abstract expressionist as an heir of the pioneer and the immigrant, a vanguard painter who took to the white expanse of the canvas as Melville's Ishmael took to the sea. Painters like Pollock were lionized and romanticized and were immensely influential on later generations of art. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that the CIA's role in the success of American modern art is really difficult to quantify. Yes, the CIA integrated itself into the fabric of the post-war American art scene and were pulling strings, but they had a lot of willing partners. America's cultural institutions were largely run by anti-communists and wanted to support American artists. But more importantly, the US government was actually very open about its support of American culture. It was just the pesky modern artists with their radical aesthetics and communist ties that required a sneaky, less public strategy. The history of art has long seen the entanglement of money, politics, and power, and featured many strange bedfellows. From the Vatican hiring Caravaggio, a brawling, murdering tyrant to help fill church pews during the Counter-Reformation, to Jacques-Louis David's revolutionary propaganda, commissioned by the soon-to-be-beheaded Louis XVI. But the CIA's great invention was to allow the public to believe abstract expressionism was a completely independent, organic phenomenon when it really wasn't. Did the abstract expressionists have creative freedom? Yeah, they did. Was there art propaganda? Well, from a certain point of view, it was. But either way you look at it, the CIA surely had a hand in nudging the trajectory of Western art in America's favor. And the abstract expressionists burned hotter with the help of American spycraft. And thank you, The Conspiracy of Art, uncovering the power and mystique of art, the smoke and mirrors, the myth-making, the strange and inexplicable, the banal and transcendent, the art of lost worlds, and the art of pure imagination. And now on Arts Express. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. As wars rage all around us, one war, World War II, still stands as the exemplar for the good war. But is that a useful or accurate designation? And if not, why does that view still have such an outsized influence in the national discourse? Our guest today is David Swanson, who has written a book called Leaving World War II Behind, 
which challenges the notion of World War II as the good war. David is the executive director of World Beyond War, the radio host of Talk World Radio, as well as the author of War is a Lie and many other books. I'm happy to be talking with the author of Leaving World War II Behind, David Swanson. Hi, David. Hi, Jack. Good to be here. Great. What was your impetus for writing this particular book? Well, if it had been in this moment that we're speaking, it would have been to uh, object to the craziness of comparing the war in Ukraine to World War II and stressing the need for victory. And I would have been pointing out the absurdity of jumping back 80 years to find an example of a victory, given the thousands of intervening wars that are overlooked. But uh, as it was written prior to the war that's all over the news today, uh, it was really about wars in general and about military spending and about how absurd it is that when you try to tell the U.S. government to spend and less on the military, uh, on preparing for more wars and fighting more wars, you're constantly referred to World War II. The, the single biggest spending program since World War II, year after year after year, is justified by World War II, despite hundreds of intervening wars, and despite a radically different world with nuclear weapons and a completely different system of foreign relations. And so it, it wasn't to say forget World War II happened. It was to say stop bringing it up when we're not talking about it. <laughs> it's not relevant to everything. Well, you start off the book talking about a mind-reading magic trick that you perform for students or lecture audiences. So tell us about that. It's a good hook. I speak to a class of students or a random group, and I say, I want to ask you all if you think any side of any war has ever been justified. This is the beginning of my uh, event. Most people will will say yes, and I'll, and I'll say, wait a minute, let me write something down. Okay, name one. And somebody will shout out World War II, and I'll hold up my piece of paper, and it will say World War II. And I'll say, aha, I read your mind. And and I can do a second step where I say why, and I write on the piece of paper. And you know, it's a little trickier because the word is either going to be Holocaust or Hitler. But if I, if I can put down both of those words, I'll, I'll get it every time, you know. This You're is, seeing an H. Yes, I'm, see, <laughs> I'm seeing an H. It's coming to me. Yeah. <laughs> If you'll forgive me, I'm going to do something I never would have dreamed of doing before the past month, and that is recommend a Ken Burns documentary. If you go watch the latest, U.S. and the Holocaust, I mean, it just eliminates that rationale, right? Because the the U.S. government very clearly in the actual history of events did absolutely nothing to try to prevent the killing of people in camps by the Nazis. And the number one public justification for doing nothing to rescue all those people was the need to focus on the war. Whereas the the number one private rationale for doing nothing to help all those people uh, was that nobody wanted them and the governments of the world didn't want them. And it was a major inconvenience to talk about uh, saving those millions of people. As a Jew, which I am, I certainly was raised with the idea that the U.S. entrance into the war saved the world and, and that it was, you know, more importantly, a moral necessity to save the Jews from the Nazi Holocaust. So true or false? 
Well, of course, it was a moral necessity to save anybody from being uh, senselessly murdered. It always was and always will be. But the U.S. government took virtually no steps in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was not a secret. You know, you can't go back in time and find World War II propaganda posters that say Uncle Sam wants you to save the Jews. But it didn't exist. I, I mean, the British government had an explicit policy of never mentioning the Jews in their propaganda. Well, okay, let, let me push back a, a bit. So, okay, let's say I, I admit you're, you're right. It had nothing to do with saving Jews or anybody else, really. But you have to admit that in the end, it's a good thing that the Nazis were defeated. So that counts as a win. Well, it's always a good thing uh, for uh, a horrible government to be put out of power. Uh, I'm not sure the Nazis were completely defeated. Uh, a great many of them were hired right into the U.S. military, and you could see their handiwork right through the war in Vietnam and the, and the Nazi-designed camps under the hills around here in, in Virginia and West Virginia for uh, hiding and living an extra week when the nuclear apocalypse comes and so forth. But the, the point is, if the Nazis had been defeated nonviolently without a war that created a whole new enterprise called war that, that in no way resembles wars pre-World War II, the incredible aerial slaughter uh, of men, women, and children that we've come to know and hate as modern war that was created in World War II. You know, it's, it's like saying to me, if you're against the U.S. Civil War 150 years later, whatever it means to be against it, you must love slavery. And the fact that much of the world ended slavery without that sort of civil war and without the bitterness uh, and with a more complete ending of slavery and establishment of civil rights, uh, that, that just doesn't matter. You know, but, but this tying, tying the most horrible thing in the world, a war, to a good cause doesn't make the war a good thing uh, <laughs> if there was a better way to address uh, the same cause. What, why then do you think that the U.S. did enter the war? Well, I think the U.S. very, uh, very much wanted to be a player in the world, wanted to dominate the world, uh, wanted to, uh, you know, take over for the British Empire. The decisions that were made early on in World War II by U.S. foreign policy experts and, and government staffers on plans to, to dominate the world and to begin putting military bases around the world. Uh, and this is what we saw coming out of World War II. Uh, and we saw the creation of the United Nations, not a League of Nations, which the U.S. wouldn't enter, not a one among equals, but a some are more equal than others institution, and the creation of, of all the world financial institutions and the whole structure of world economy and militarism and politics that we've had since World War II. Uh, was being drawn up in the early days of World War II. And, and, and the United States couldn't create that world it wanted if they weren't in the war. What role did American corporations have in supporting Hitler? A much bigger one than 
it's comfortable for people to talk about a much bigger one than was legal under U.S. law or than anyone was ever held accountable for. And it's not just exceptions like IBM making the the machines that were used for the death camps. Uh, it's major U.S. corporations from automobile and truck companies to, you know, the U.S. troops were quite surprised to get to, to, to Germany and find the Nazis driving U.S. vehicles. You know, the, the corporate interest in, in making a buck was, I think, the driving factor in, in U.S. corporations uh, standing by Nazi Germany and, and in some cases right through the war. But there was also a good bit of support for Nazism, ideological uh, support for Nazism. Uh, of, of course, uh, Hitler and his ilk were, were big fans of Henry Ford and the love affair was mutual. People liked to take history back to a particular moment and say, what would you do in this crisis moment? But nobody wants to turn the clock back a little farther and say, well, why support the rise of Nazism in Germany uh, and then declare fighting it the most noble deed of, of world history? Top officials in the Nazi government claimed, rightly or wrongly, that without U.S. corporate support, they never could have launched their war effort. Uh, they wouldn't have had the raw materials or the machinery needed. You said something in the book which reminded me of something that I had just read in some writings of Julian Assange. And Assange says that human beings cannot possibly be naturally warlike or else you wouldn't need all this propaganda to force them to go to war. You say something very similar. You say the only way to justify such a thing as, as a good war is with false beliefs so strong that they need to be called myths. And you list four major war myths. Would you like to go through them briefly? War is necessary. War is beneficial. War is justifiable. And Thank war you. is inevitable. Uh, well, the notion that war is inevitable goes to this question of, you know, human beings being inclined toward war by our genes and so forth. Well, you know, the, the documented medical cases of suffering from war deprivation are, have reached a grand total of zero ever on the entire planet. Uh, the most people who take part in war suffer dramatically. Uh, and most people, even in the most warlike nations, uh, and at this moment, that would be this one. Avoid it at all costs. You know, war isn't it isn't in anybody's genes. It isn't the norm. Societies have gone centuries without war, even after going centuries with war. Uh, so it's, it's a cultural choice. Uh, it's not built into our economic system or our genes or anything that we can blame outside of ourselves, our choice. But the notion that it's, you know, that it can be necessary, this is the big one for people, yeah. right? And, and it's the one, it's one of the reasons that World War II is their favorite piece of propaganda, yeah. because you claim that it was necessary for a particular side, the side that didn't start it and the side that won it. I, of course, hear every day and have since February from dozens of angry people 
that Russia is fighting an absolutely defensive, necessary moral war, and from dozens of other people, that Ukraine is fighting an absolutely defensive, necessary, had no possible other choice war. Uh, doesn't the, the fact that I hear from both sides the exact same thing doesn't mean one of them isn't right. Uh, but one of them isn't right. <laughs> They're both wrong. <laughs> there are always choices. Uh, you don't mm-hmm. have to use organized mass violence and escalate it, escalate it and escalate it until you're risking nuclear apocalypse. Well, in your book, you have lots of citations which show that the A-bomb didn't save lives and that, in fact, many of the generals, including Eisenhower, were against using it. And yet the myth that it saved lives or ended the war continues. Why is that? I think because it's in all the history books and it's in all the documentaries and it's taught as if it were credible uh, and it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, seven out of the eight top, you know, generals in the in the U.S. military said that it was absolutely not needed, indefensible, immoral. The, the date for the second bomb that's almost never talked about, the one dropped on Nagasaki, the principal motivation for which was demonstrating a different type of bomb, uh, the date was moved up uh, for fear that Japan might surrender before the bomb could be dropped. It was you know, widely understood that Japan wanted to surrender, was asking to surrender, wanted only to be able to keep its emperor and not see its emperor be executed. And they, of course, were allowed that demand after the bombs had been dropped. And it was understood that when the Soviets invaded and joined the the war on Japan, it was going to be all over for the Japanese. Uh, and of course, that happened and it played out just as expected. Uh, the war went on for weeks after those two bombs. The two bombs didn't end the war. Uh, They just destroyed two cities of dozens of Japanese cities that had been burned to the ground already using so-called conventional bombs. I mean, they had few cities to pick from in in targeting the the nuclear bombs because they'd burned so many already. The government line and the Hollywood movie line and the textbooks and what your high school teacher will tell you to this day makes absolutely no sense, doesn't correspond to the facts. Um, well, so so many of these discussions about uh, pacifism and ending war turn into kind of uh, abstract intellectual exercises. Do countries have the right to fight back when attacked? Do they have the right to ask their allies to join them in the fight? And we never get down to actual cases. Well, wh- where are you talking about and what happened and how could yeah. that have been stopped and how could that have been deflected? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's really a, an 18th century notion of having the right to do something. I, I much prefer the, the more contemporary question of what would be the best thing to do, right? Because you, you have the right to shoot yourself in the foot. You have the right to do a million things. This notion of that I can go and investigate and determine whether you have the right or not, as if a surgeon's going to cut you open. Oh, there's the heart, the liver, the right to defensive war. You know, it's it, it, it's nonsense. Uh, I, I can't, I don't have the power 
to deny an Iraqi or an Afghan or a Russian or a Ukrainian the right to fight back. I just have the power to give my opinion and support it with factual evidence on what would be the best thing to do. And if we look at the evidence that uh, scholars like Erica Chenoweth have compiled and we look at the success rate of nonviolent campaigns, even nonviolent campaigns against invasions and occupations and coups and tyranny, they succeed more often. They, they fail all the time, but they succeed over twice as frequently as violence. Uh, and the successes are almost always dramatically longer lasting. Do you have the right to, to, to fight back? Of course. I mean, what does that even mean? But should you? Is it the best thing to do? Well, what do you see as a strategy for Americans to stop war? Well, I, I think we have to use nonviolence not only as a replacement for war, right? Not only prepare unarmed civil defense uh, as public policy, but we have to use nonviolent activism to move the U.S. government away from its addiction to war. If we had a democracy, if we weren't just bombing places in the name of democracy, we'd be doing just fine. We'd be moving steadily away from militarism. I mean, the fact that the United States now spends almost as much as the rest of the world put together and that most of the big war spenders in the rest of the world are spending most of their money on U.S. weapons, and that the U.S. is the leading supplier to dictatorships and so-called democracies alike across the globe. There's hardly a war without U.S. weapons on both sides. It's just madness. Uh, and the notion that it's human nature and in our genes and part of humanity well, what about the other 96% of humanity that's not in the U.S., that is investing dramatically less in militarism? Uh, aren't they part of humanity, right? Can we not take a step in that direction? The, the U.S. and its allies have now given for free to Ukraine more weapons in the past few months than Russia spends on its military in a year. Well, one thing I want to ask you, David, certainly while it's true that the existence of war precedes the existence of capitalism, the current world order is capitalism. You don't really talk much about capitalism. What role do you think capitalism plays in stoking wars? And can wars end as long as capitalism exists? I would love to abolish capitalism uh, and policing and prisons and half a dozen other horrible things. And I think we would have a stronger movement uh, of active advocates for change if we got together everybody who wants to abolish war and environmental destruction and mass incarceration and capitalism and all of these things together. And I think it has a certain logic to it. And I think there are things that, you know, there are habits of thought and cultural practices that can be better taken on in a, in a holistic way by going after all of these evils together. Uh, but I do object to the idea that's, that's such a favorite of so many people of picking out one evil and declaring that it must be ended first before you can end any of the other ones. Because I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know which we're going to end first. And I'm not going to object to ending one evil thing uh, if, we don't, if we can't end the others the same day. And it's just not true. There's no reason that anyone has shown me that you can't end one thing, like war, without first ending something else, like capitalism. 
We have to shut down the peace movement until we've gotten rid of capitalism. You know, we, we can't do that or we'll have a nuclear apocalypse. How can listeners get your book and find out more about you? You can check out davidswanson.org and worldbeyondwar.org and rootsaction.org. Fantastic. Well, thanks, David. I've been talking with author, activist, journalist, and radio host, David Swanson. The book is Leaving World War II Behind, a well-documented book about the reckless rush to the world's most destructive war and why war does not have to be inevitable. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.